Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 127, and this time we're going to talk about not going anywhere in your van. That is, what if you've decided to stay stationary for a long period of time? What should you do to prepare yourself and your van? We're also going to talk about the TPMS system that your van probably has. A tale from the road involving dogs. It's a little bit sad. And a product review of the Turbo Fan. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Very glad to be here with you, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. So, of course, people are talking about gas prices and what are we going to do and everything's so expensive and blah, blah, blah. I mean, ultimately, while this stuff affects everybody to different degrees and some people quite seriously, we're still going to do what we're going to do. And that is where we should focus. So I'm in a situation where I have a stationary vehicle That would be the Tiki Bago, which, for those who haven't heard previous episodes, is a 1972 Winnebago Indian that somebody converted into a Tiki Hut that I drove across the country and is currently sitting along the Illinois River in north-central Illinois. And it's not going anywhere. I mean, it's drivable, but I'm not going to move it. It's, it's, it's permanent. And that got me thinking that, hey, I've got this vehicle that's going to sit here. I bet there's a lot of other people who have vehicles that they aren't going to move very much, whether due to gas prices or circumstances, or maybe just because they're happy where they are. Whatever the situation might be, here's some things you should know if you're not going to use your vehicle for an extended period of time. Now, what's an extended period of time? Well, I'm talking about months or, you know, a month or so. But some of these tips are going to be useful no matter what. So let's just dive right in. One of the first things you should do is make an effort to make it level. You're going to be happier. Your stuff is going to be happier. It doesn't have to be perfectly level unless you have one of those absorption fridges, one of those old three-way fridges that works with either propane or electric, one of those. They do want level. They're, they're a little persnickety because of the way the ammonia goes through the tubes and those things. They want to be pretty level. So take some time to level your van. Now, you don't have to go out and buy fancy levelers. You just need a car jack or two. You can get them at junkyards for cheap. You can get them at pawn shops. Harbor Freight, they're not hard to get. A bottle jack, scissor jacks, whatever. You're not actually going to use them to jack up your vehicle. You're just going to use them to lift the vehicle up a little bit so that you will become more level. And then you can just leave them. I mean, jack stands are better for really long-term storage. And um, if you're not familiar with what a jack stand is, it's kind of like a jack that won't go up, nor will it go down. You jack the vehicle up, you put the jack stand under there, and then you take the jack away, and the jack stand holds the vehicle up those work really well for leveling and what you can do with them is use one jack and go around the vehicle and place jack stands wherever you want another thing you can do with jack stands that's useful for long-term storage is to lift the entire vehicle up onto jack stands so that you have the weight of the vehicle off of the suspension because the suspension is going to make your vehicle rock back and forth if you put the vehicle on jack stands it's going to be very solid like you know a house Now, jacking your vehicle up and using jack stands does require some knowledge, and it does require a good knowledge of safety. So make sure you're jacking up in the right place and make sure you've done some research on how to do this. Another thing to consider when you're going to park long term is the sun. 
See, a moving vehicle, the sun hits it, obviously, but the sun hits it from all different angles. When you are parked in one place for a long period of time, the sun is going to be directly hitting certain parts of your van every day, all day as long as the sun's up, and that can cause some problems. For example, your tires, which are black, are very susceptible to the sun. And it's recommended that you cover your tires if they're going to be sitting for a long time so that the sun doesn't destroy your tires, because it will in time. If you go around RV parks, you'll see that a lot of people have tire covers that you can get at Camping World or whatever. But honestly, a piece of cardboard will work just as well. You just need to keep the tires in the shade. Now, for my Tiki Bago, the way a Winnebago, an old Winnebago is designed, is the tires are kind of under the body. They don't really stick out at all. And I've noticed that because of how I have the vehicle parked, the sun doesn't actually hit the tires very much. So I'm not worried about it. But depending on where you are, especially if you're in the desert, yeah, you're going to want to uh, make an effort to cover up the tires. Cardboard, a trash bag, a blue tarp, or you can make something fancy if you want it to look better. That's up to you. Don't forget your windshield wipers. Yeah, seriously, your windshield wipers are made out of rubber, usually, sometimes silicone, whatever. But the thing that wears out windshield wipers n more than usage is the sun. So you can just take them off or cover them up with a sock or something. I don't know if you'll figure it out, wrap them up. But get your wipers out of the sun if you want them to last. And maybe you just don't care and you'll replace the wipers. That's up to you, too. Now, water, obviously, you're going to have to get water to your rig. And, you know, if you're mooch docking, as they call it, that is like staying in a friend's driveway, maybe you have a water hookup, and that's fine. Or you're going to have to have water brought to your vehicle. However, you, you have to deal with this anyway. It's just that you're not going to be able to use your vehicle to go get water. So you're going to have to figure that out. How are you going to get water to the vehicle? The way I have it figured out for the Tiki Bago right now is that in my van, which I have separately, I have a five-gallon jug. And every time I go down to the Tiki Bago, I fill up the five-gallon jug and add that to the 40-gallon water tank that is in the Tiki Bago. And I find that I don't really use five gallons in a couple days. And if I do, I will go get more water, but that's how I'm handling it. Now, the other kind of water you have to worry about, of course, is gray water and black water. Now, gray water, controversial as it is, depending on where you are, it may be okay to just let it drain on the ground. Lots of controversy about this. No matter what you say, people are going to be on both sides of it. You have to make your own determination. If you're in a wilderness area, it may be straight up uh, illegal. Or if you're in a, in a community, it might be illegal. So you've got that to worry about. But in a wilderness area especially, especially when you're near water, it may not be a great idea. I handle it by filtering the gray water. So I have the gray water coming out of the Tiki Bago and going into a big container of sand. And it's basically a half-filled container. So the water goes into the container and it fills up the container and then gradually drips out the bottom where I have a bunch of holes in the bucket. And it's relatively clean water going into the ground. And it's and where it's going into the ground, in my case, is, is gravel. So uh, it's pretty low impact, even though I am near a river. This water isn't actually getting to the river, at least not in any time frame that I can understand. I mean, maybe in a few weeks, those molecules of water will make it to the river but by that time they have been reduced to just molecules and all the soap and whatever is is gone now your engine now <laughs> we're assuming here you want to actually have your van move again you do need to take care of the engine a bit gasoline 
expires. It doesn't last forever. And this is the tricky thing, right? So you have fuel, you're not going to use it, but you also don't want it to go bad. So do you want to have the tank be empty? Uh, there's problems with that because if you don't have the tank full of fuel, that extra space in the tank can be then filled up with moisture and that's bad. So the recommendation I've seen is that you do want to leave it full but you may want to add a stabilizer. And you can buy this at any auto parts store. You can just go and say, hey, where can I find fuel stabilizer? And you can get one of those containers and read the instructions and do that. And that will help you from getting into the really bad situation of having a tank full of bad fuel. That is a no fun situation. And a lot of people who've renovated old RVs face this. And yeah, you don't want that. Also, I, I think it's wise to start the engine every once in a while. With the Tiki Bago, every time I go down, I start it and I run it until it gets up to temperature, and then I turn it off. That keeps everything lubricated, keeps all the parts going, and also lets me know that the thing is still running. That way, I'm not going to have a shock if I need to move it for some reason. Another thing to consider is the roof. Now, this time of year, everyone's thinking about heat. Some of us are really thinking about heat this time of year. If you're going to be stationary, you have the option of doing things on your roof. Like, you can cover parts of your roof that you normally couldn't. Basically, if you can shade your roof somehow, even just by putting a tarp over it or putting cardboard on it, such that the cardboard doesn't come in direct contact with the roof, that's going to make a huge difference in cooling. And you can spend more time and effort on this than you could if you were only staying for a weekend. So think about a way to cover your roof. Now, if you're using solar, you don't want to cover the solar panels, obviously, and that's the big problem in the summer, right? You, you want to park in the shade to keep the van cool, but you also want the solar. Consider taking the solar panels down and making them portable so that you can park in the shade and move the solar panels to the side that would be awesome. Another option you have is because you're not moving anywhere, you have the entire underneath of the van to use as storage. Now you could lay down a tarp and drive on it and then put your stuff on the tarp under the van, or you can just put things in storage compartments, etc. Now, once you start keeping stuff outside your van, depending on your circumstances, that's when you're really going to start attracting negative attention. So if you're in a city environment, know that you have then crossed a line and that more people are going to be paying attention to you and some of those people are going to want you not to be there. So stay neat. Have everything looking neat goes a long way. Another thing you could consider is spending some time putting up screens. You don't have to do anything fancy. If you just go to Ikea, they sell these white screen curtains that are meant to put around a bed just for effect, but they actually work really well as bug screens. They cost like five bucks and you can cut them to shape and stuff. If you're gonna be stationary and you don't really have to worry about moving this stuff, I mean, you can just tape it up to the windows if you need to. That would be a huge relief on these really hot days. And the last thing to worry about is security. One of the biggest parts of security in a van is that you can simply drive away if something bad is happening. I mean, seriously, that's a large level of security. Uh-oh, something bad, something doesn't feel right, I'm going to drive off. Yeah, you can't really do that if you've set up your vehicle to be stationary for a long time. So it does make sense to take some extra time to secure your vehicle. First thing, and I always say this, is the most security you're going to get is to have a dog. People don't want to mess with dogs, so if you have a dog, that's going to help you out. There are also some clever things you can do with chains. 
for example, if you're chaining things outside, like let's say you have a generator, um, you can chain that to the vehicle. There are many secure places on the vehicle and under the vehicle where you can chain something so people can't just walk away with them. But it's also true inside. Now, you have to balance safety from people breaking in with safety from you being able to get out in an emergency. But let's say you're in a van like a Promaster, okay? We're going to use a Promaster as an example. You've got two front doors. You've got one slider, maybe two, but probably one. And then you've got the two back doors. Well, those front doors, you may not use very much. And you can actually run a chain. It doesn't even have to be a chain. It could be a rope and tie the doors together. Find a secure place to put a rope on either side and then tie the doors together. And that way, even if they broke the window and unlocked the door, they still couldn't open it. That quick five minutes provides a nice level of security because anytime someone's trying to break into a vehicle, they don't want anything to go wrong. They want to have a plan and they want to get out of there quick. And as soon as they encounter a barrier, there's a good chance they're going to flee. Now, you can do the same thing with the back doors as well. A lot of people have ways to do this where they'll put in eye bolts and then you can run a lock between the eye bolts. And the slider's a little bit more complicated because of the way the slider works, but you can do similar things with the slider. But remember, if you do these things, you're eliminating ways for you to get out of the van in case of an emergency. So if you do that, do it smart. Obviously, I'm just scratching the surface here, but it is a change of mindset to be stationary versus being mobile. And uh, hey, if this is the summer where you're going to be stationary, go ahead, make that change and make the best of the situation you're in. Tech Talk. Let's talk about TPMS. You you may have seen those initials, and uh, you, you probably your first encounter with TPMS was to see that flat tire icon on your dashboard. Yeah, so TPMS is Tire Pressure Monitoring System, and a lot of modern vehicles have this. And it's basically... In the most primitive form, it's just a way for the car or the van to tell you that you have a flat tire. I mean, that's all it's trying to do. Most of them will have just a light on the dashboard that says, you know, you've got a flat tire or your tire is low. The way these things work is a little bit clever. Inside each tire, there is a tire stem and on the other side of that tire stem is this little sensor thing and it senses the pressure inside the tire. Now, if you're thinking about this, you're probably wondering, okay, so the sensor is inside the tire. How does it get the data to the vehicle? Because obviously you can't have a wire doing anything because the wheel spins. Well, it does it with radio and they have little batteries in them and they send a signal to a receiver that is inside the wheel well. And the receiver then will go to a computer somewhere in the vehicle and it will have settings. And as soon as the data is outside those settings, such as the pressure is too low, the light will come on in the dashboard. And then you have the fun thing of figuring out which tire is low. Unless you have a fancy vehicle, some of them will tell you which tire is low. Okay, so that's how they're supposed to work. And every time you get the tires changed, they're supposed to be inspected to make sure they work. But sometimes this doesn't happen. 
It's a very common scenario that if you go to, say, Jiffy Lube and they change your oil and they say, hey, we won't rotate your tires for so much money, and you say, okay, fine, rotate the tires. They'll rotate the tires, but they won't change the tire pressures. <laughs> so in most cargo vans, the rear tires get a lot more pressure than the fronts. I mean, it could be like 80 pounds per square inch in the back and 60 pounds in the front, depends on the van and a whole bunch of other things. If they rotate those tires and don't change the parameters, then suddenly you've got two low tires in the back and two overfilled tires in the front. And most of the time, TPMS won't even report overfilling. So that's basically how the system works. If you do get that light on the dashboard, check to see if you have a low tire. And for most of us, that means we're going to have to go check the pressure at each tire individually and then fill it up and you're probably done and you'll most likely have to do this when it starts getting cold because you know when air cools the molecules get closer together there's less pressure and that little thing goes off so anyway that's just an, an explanation of how tpms works it is a good thing to have it is not just a pain in the butt because it will warn you if you're driving on the highway and you suddenly have a flat and that can save you from some really really bad things product review so road pro you're familiar with road pro the trucker's friend they are the 12 volt company that makes all types of things that run on 12 volts refrigerators and stoves and crock pots and stuff and they also make fans and you see these things all the time at larger truck stops and you can get them on amazon or whatever but when i was driving across the country in the tiki bago i did not have a fan i was a little surprised to see that there were literally no fans at all in the tiki bago and so i went to a truck stop and picked up a fan. Now, I knew that at home in my van, I had an oscillating 12-volt fan that also is a Road Pro, so I didn't want to get exactly the same thing. I wanted to get something a little different, and what I got was the Road Pro Turbo Fan, because, you know, it's got the name Turbo in it, so it's fancy. No, no actually, though, this one is called a turbo fan because it kind of is like a turbo in that it is a fan in a tube rather than a big blade that's in a cage. This fan provides high airflow in a very directional sense. So this fan would be good for somebody who wanted air blowing on their face while they're driving, but nowhere else. This is not a good general ventilation fan. And yeah, this thing does blow a lot of air. I love having air blowing on me, and I don't like this thing on high. It's, it's too much air. <laughs> so if you're looking for a lot of airflow in a small space, this could work. It's a little strange how it's controlled. So there is a cigarette lighter plug and then a cord that goes to the fan, and the fan comes with a clip that's pretty strong, and you clip it onto wherever you want. But the controls for it are actually on the plug. There is a dial on the plug, a thumb wheel, that turns it on and then adjusts the speed. So it's not meant for a permanent install. Like you, if you were going to wire this to your battery or whatever, you would actually lose the controls. So you'd have to use a socket or something. I like the fan, but I do have some concerns with it. Uh, the first being that. You can't really direct wire it. The second being... It's loud, and it's not loud in a white noise kind of general, like, oh, I can sleep now kind of a loud. It's just freaking loud. It's like screaming at you, and that's just the nature of having high airflow through a tube. It's just loud like that. I mean, jet engines <laughs> sort of kind of work the same way, and they're pretty loud, so you can kind of see the concept there. 
Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. I recommend this fan for people who are looking for a lot of airflow aimed at a certain place. It's also good for portability. This would be an easy fan to travel with. It would travel well in a suitcase. But if you're looking for a fan to sleep with or a fan that's just going to provide white noise or general ventilation, nah, go with the oscillating fan. It's going to make you much happier. Actually, everywhere where I said turbo, replace that with tornado. It is the tornado fan. But everything else I said is right. A place to visit. So suddenly I got a call and off I went to Wilmington, North Carolina, which as much as I've traveled, I had never been to Wilmington before. And I had to do a little Googling about it and found out that it was at one time the largest city in North Carolina up until the turn of the 20th century. It used to be the capital, has a long history going back to the 18th century, and it's right on the water. I mean, this is kind of a port town. Lots of interesting stuff. Now, a lot of that history was pretty dark. Wilmington has had some really bad things happen. So I was interested to see what the town was like today. Now, most of the time when I do these place to visits, I'm recommending that you go visit a place. With Wilmington, I'm not recommending it, but I'm not not recommending it. First off, I wasn't there long enough to evaluate it properly. I, I was there to do a training, so I spent most of my time at the training, and I only had a little bit of time to drive around downtown and go to the beach. But I did learn some things that I think would be good knowledge for someone who's thinking about visiting Wilmington. First off, it is a place where their history is on display. Now, the really bad history, and you can look it up in Wikipedia, I didn't see too much reference to that. But they do have more historic signs than just about any place I have ever seen. And I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. I mean, there's one street downtown where there's a big white sign about some historical thing, like every 10 feet. So if you're a history buff, that is awesome awesome. Also, they have a booming restaurant bar scene. So if you're a pub crawler kind of person, yeah, Wilmington's got something for you. And the beaches are really nice. They're not completely sandy, but they're big and wide and and they have just enough interest on them to not be as boring as I find those big sandy beaches. I mean, there's rocks and shells and things. And uh, yeah, the water's a little bit cold because you're farther north, but, but the beaches are pretty nice. However, Parking is a real problem. When you get closer to the beach, parking can cost as much as $40 a day. And the beach I went to was Wrightsville Beach, which is actually a separate community. And there's a sign as you enter in this community, there is no free parking. <laughs> so basically, this is not a place you're going to stay overnight in your van. You're going to have to figure out someplace else to stay in the van and then go hang out there for the day. And the one lot I saw that allowed all-day parking was $40 to park there. Closer to the beach, like in the public lots, it was $5 an hour. So that's a bit of a barrier, and um, th there may be a way to do it with public transportation. I don't know. I, hadn't, I did not figure it out. So that's kind of a drawback. But there is a lot of stuff to see there. There's a battleship to tour. There's lots of historic homes. And, well, I, I would go back. I'm, I'm, I would go back and, you know, go back as a tourist and, and learn some of the more stuff. So anyway, since I was just there, I thought I'd pass along what I knew it actually reminded me a bit of New England, which is not something I expected from North Carolina. So if you're going to be in that area, yeah, you could check it out. Just know that it's going to be hard to park that thing. Resource recommendation. 
So I have property on a river now, and suddenly flood stages are somewhat important to me. And for anybody who's listening to this who was in Yellowstone, uh, yeah, flood stages kind of matter, don't they? So if you're going to stay on a river and you have been watching the weather and you're concerned, huh, it rained a lot recently, I wonder what the flood stage is. Well, there's a great resource to figure that out. For any river in the U.S. that's of size, you know, not a little creek, but major rivers, Yellowstone River, certainly, the government actually has a service that provides up-to-the-minute flood information and forecasting. And for the river I'm concerned about, which is the Illinois River in Illinois... It's been great. I can tell, like, over the course of the weekend what the flood stage is going to be. And for me, that changes things a bit because on my property, a 10-foot difference in flood stage means I have a beach or I don't because <laughs> the beach goes completely underwater. So if you would like to check out the flood information for any river in the United States, go to water dot weather dot gov yep that's it it's easy to remember water dot weather dot gov and yeah i'll have a link in the show notes but it's a fairly complex page it's it's pretty technical but it doesn't take too long to get the information you want and boy you can really get a whole bunch of information from this site it will also do long-term predictions and historic predictions and it will show you flood maps like you can see that you can see if your campsite floods or not. And that can be really useful information for planning. So again, that's water.weather.gov. It's a service of your government paid for by your tax dollars. And well, this is actually a good one. And it's nice to be able to say that. Tales from the road. So you may have noticed that I kind of did things a little out of order this week and I put Tales from the Road at the end. And I did that because this is a little bit of a sensitive story. If you are the kind of person who does not want to hear stories about animals in peril, why don't you just end the podcast right here? <laughs> this story does feature animals in peril. And after I'm done with this Tales from the Road, I'm just going to do my normal sign-off. And the only thing you're going to miss is the quote. And that's okay. So... I'm going to give you a sec. You can go ahead and leave, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Okay. Now, for the rest of you, I will tell you the story. It was 2010, and I had just had a conversation with a friend, and I, she basically changed my life. That's you, Susie, if you happen to be listening. That conversation was very important to me. And I was living in Las Vegas at the time, and I, the upshot of it all was that I needed to leave then, like right away. I literally packed up my apartment and left Vegas in a day. And this was a fully furnished apartment. I had a Honda Ridgeline pickup truck, one of the older ones that was a funny shape. And I put every last thing I could in that pickup truck. And anything that didn't fit got donated. And I started driving to Vermont, which was my destination. And I drove straight. Uh, it was a very long trip. Lots of bad things happened on the trip, but I did make it even though I was terribly abusing the vehicle. But one of the things that happened was that I was driving through, I think it was Indiana and it was fairly busy traffic, but we were maintaining speed. We were doing maybe 65 miles an hour and you know, it was fine. And then I noticed that on the side of the road, there was this car that apparently had broken down. It was one of these situations where the car was pulled over on the shoulder and the doors were open and there were kind of people sitting on the seats. And yeah, I don't know the situation, 
But suddenly I saw this flurry of activity and two dogs bolted out of the car and ran into the field. And I could just, this was way ahead of me at this point, and I could just see this happening. And then to my horror, there was a black dog and a golden dog. The golden dog turned and ran right into the highway. And this was Interstate 80, right into the middle of the highway and got through lane one and then on lane two got whacked by a car really hard stove in the front end of the car and the dog just slid like a hockey puck across the pavement now i didn't see where the dog landed i'm assuming the dog was killed instantly but it was it was fairly traumatic to see and i can't even imagine what the people in the car were going through I instantly called 911 because I saw this as a safety issue, uh, and I told them there were dogs loose on the interstate, and I gave them the mile marker, and they didn't seem terribly concerned, but they did say they'd send someone, and I don't know what actually happened. But I do know that once the golden dog got hit, the black dog noticed and ran out, and I didn't see what happened after that, but I don't think it was good. So pretty horrific and if you drive enough the chances are you're going to see something like that whether it be a deer or a squirrel or whatever it's just an unfortunate reality of driving that animals will be in the road so the fallout from this was is that i told this story and i made the statement that if you see an animal in the road and the animal is smaller than a deer you should actually just hit it now i that that was very controversial people like what are you talking about hitting animals well in an interstate situation where there are a lot of other cars around you especially the safest thing you can do is hit the animal it's not the safest for the animal obviously but it's the safest for you and the people around you because imagine what would have happened now i did not hit this animal let's be clear here somebody else did but that person didn't swerve and didn't slam on the brakes they slowed down a little bit because they were trying to avoid it and then hit the dog straight on and that was the right thing to do and not everyone likes hearing that but the reason is that it was the safest thing to do for all the people around if the person had swerved to avoid that animal or slammed on the brake on a busy interstate they could have caused a multi-car pileup and it would have been a much bigger tragedy than it was so my advice to folks and they don't like it all the time and i'm sorry but i have to say what i think is ethically the best is that if you encounter an animal in the road and you are near other cars traveling at speed, don't change anything. You can take your foot off the gas, but don't slam on the brakes. Don't swerve. Try to get the animal between the wheels if you can, whatever, but you're going to have to hit the animal. And then if it's a big animal, like a deer or a moose, well, then you're in danger from hitting it and the situation is a bit different. Then you have to do emergency maneuvers to try to avoid that. All this happens so quickly, you're going to react and you're going to do what you're going to do. But try to avoid the reaction of drastically altering how you're driving because you could actually cause more damage than just the death of an animal. So... Yes, not a fun story, not a good story, but hopefully a story that you guys never have to live. But if you do, 
I ask you to consider doing what that driver did, even though I'm sure they felt horrible about it. Well, folks, on that happy note, thank you for listening to this week's episode, number 127. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If for any reason you need to get a hold of me, you can find me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. We're also on Facebook and Discord and Instagram and Twitter, although I'm not really very good at many of those things. And until next time, remember these words from the Tampa Hillsboro Expressway, although I imagine they did not come up with this. Leave sooner, drive slower, live longer. <laughs>